Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Great. When you're below that, you may leave now to go to Kids on Worship. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And as you are opening up your scriptures and everyone is uh, getting settled, I do want to draw your attention to a very important, very serious video on the screen. Well, summer's almost over. I guess it's been pretty good. Just been hanging out with my friends. Oh, we won our Little League Championship. I was MVP. Don't mean to brag, but 57 home runs, only one strikeout. Every summer goes by faster. It's kind of depressing, but I guess I'm ready to go back. A lot of people have been giving me a hard time lately, saying I'm too big for t-ball, too big for kindergarten, pushing me to graduate. I almost did it once a few years back. I heard that first graders get to write in cursive. Sounded pretty cool. But in the end, I just couldn't do it. I have my iPhone anyway. Johnny, what does C8 say? My kids are a little embarrassed that they're further along than I am. Hey, girls. But I figure when it's time to go to first grade, I'll know it. It'll be obvious. The heavens will part, a voice will thunder, Johnny, it's time. You need to graduate kindergarten. Johnny, it's time. You need to graduate kindergarten. Eh... Not thundery enough. One, two, three, go, go, Bulls! If I graduate kindergarten, then I won't be eligible for t-ball. And I'm the man out here, a slugger, a star, and the only player on the team that hasn't had an accident in his baseball pants. Out there, who knows? I'm just not feeling it, you know? I don't feel called. I don't feel called to make myself uncomfortable. I don't feel called to no more summer breaks. I don't feel called to dad's pitch. Why have somebody throw a rock-hard baseball at me when I can hit it off of a tee? You know what I'm saying? Why do something that's hard when you can do something that's easy? I mean, we're undefeated. Why mess that up? It just doesn't make sense. But I guess some people don't get it. I guess some people just aren't smart enough to figure out how to stay comfortable, how to make life easy. It's kind of sad. I feel sorry for them. Is your faith still in T-ball? That's the ultimate question that we're going to answer over the next few weeks together as we start this new sermon series called Identity. Being who we are in Christ and We've spent a year in Acts, and we've kind of gone verse by verse, and so this study is more of a topical study, so we're going to be all over the Bible, but this morning, I want to just remind us of what our mission statement is as a church. We talk about this a lot, but I just want to remind us. We exist to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and disciple for God's great commission. 
And it first starts with glory. Everything's about God's glory. Everything's about Him, giving praise to Him. We don't start with ourselves as the center of the universe. We start with God as the center of the universe. Everything revolves around our mighty, sovereign Savior, God. It's all about His glory. Everything that we do is for His glory. Secondly, we declare God's gospel. I hope by now, after spending a year in Acts, we understand the importance of the gospel, that we declare it, that we share it. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who will believe. It's also for us as believers as well. We need the gospel on a daily basis. But I think, and I'm being real honest with you this morning as your pastor, there is a huge weakness in our church right now. And the weakness is discipling for God's great commission. Discipling. Disciple making. Which leaves us with a huge question, what, what in the world is the great commission? What is a disciple? Would we know what one is if we saw one? How do we make disciples? What does it look like in your individual life? What does it look like in the life of our church? So I want us to go on a journey of understanding disciple making, but before we get there, I want us to go all the way back to the beginning and ask a very fundamental question. A very fundamental question to those of you here this morning who claim the name of Jesus Christ, you've trusted him for salvation, you are a believer. Here's the question. What truly is my identity? Who am I in Christ? Because what you do for Jesus flows out of who you are in Jesus. Being comes before doing. You'll hear me say that a lot. Who we are determines what we do. Often in Christian circles, we get it backwards. We focus on all the things we've got to do for Jesus, and we need to step back and say, first of all, who are we in Jesus? So there's two foundational passages of Scripture that we're going to be looking at over the next few months. Two scriptures that set the stage for this whole issue of what God is calling us to do as a church. The first one is in Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. So let's read that together. Romans 8, 29. And I want you to pay attention to a key word there. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed. That's the key word there. To be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. God has planned in eternity past that we would look more and more like Jesus. That is God's plan for your life. If you want to know what is God's plan for your life as a Christian, it's very simple. For you to look more and more like Jesus. To act like Jesus, to speak like Jesus, to interact like Jesus, to reflect the glory of Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what God's plan is for your life, to look like Jesus. The second passage of Scripture, if you will, turn to 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. This is a parallel passage that uses a similar word in the original language that we get from the word conformed to the image of Christ. But Paul uses a little different word here, but it carries the same idea. Our other foundational passage of Scripture is 2 Corinthians three eighteen. So let's read that. And we all, that means all of us who are Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
Paul is saying that transformation in the Christian life comes from looking. Looking at Jesus. And notice what he says. He says, we all. Now, he's comparing us to Moses. Moses had the privilege of going up on the mountain. If you remember the story of the Old Testament, he got to see God's backside glory. And Moses was a very privileged person in the Old Testament to spend intimate time with God up on the mountain. He came down and he was, he was glowing. He was radiating the glory of God. But Paul says, we all have the privilege of seeing the glory of God. And he says it's like we're looking in a mirror, as beholding into a mirror. So we have to ask the question, what's the mirror that we are to be looking into? In our culture, we look in the mirror, what, 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 what comes back at us? Ourselves. Do we want to be looking at ourselves? No. The mirror that we are to be looking at, Paul says there, is the glory of Christ. We look at the glory of Christ in the gospel, and then when we look at Jesus, we become like Jesus. And that word in the original language means to continually, constantly, be ongoingly gazing at Jesus. So, so what does it mean to keep on looking at Jesus? Does it mean we stare up into heaven and hope we see him? Does it mean that we wait for some mystical experience to come into our lives where we can suddenly see Jesus? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. How does that happen? Well, it comes primarily through the scriptures. When you read the scriptures, you see Jesus. You see Jesus, as I was praying this morning, I was thinking about it. From Genesis to Revelation, you see Jesus on the pages of scripture. You see Jesus when you pray to him. You see Jesus when you come and you hear preaching. And when we we talk about the gospel, we see Jesus when we see baptisms. We see the death, burial, and resurrection. We see Jesus when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We see Jesus when we are having our minds renewed day by day. So Paul says we're being transformed. We're being transformed to look like Jesus. Paul uses that term another place in the Bible. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul says in Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. In this passage, Paul says we're being transformed. That's where we get our Greek word metamorphosis, metamorpho. We're being transformed. It's a continual process. We don't transform ourselves. As a matter of fact, Paul says, who does this? He says, this comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who's, who's doing this transformation work in our lives, and it's an ongoing process. None of us here will ever arrive until the day we step foot into heaven. When we step foot into heaven, we will ultimately look like Jesus, and that's going to be a glorious day. But until we get there, God is in the process, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to, to conform us, to transform us, to look more and more like Christ. That's what God's plan is for our lives. And so when we think about the inner transformation, when we're transformed from the inside out, it flows into action. It flows into obedience. Affections for Christ translate into actions for Christ. Think about Moses. How much time did Moses spend up on that mountain? He spent a lot of time. And what was he doing? He was spending time in the presence of the Lord soaking in the glory of the Lord so that when he came down the mountain, what happened? He reflected that glory and they had to put a veil over his face. And Paul says that's what's going to happen to us. When you look more and more like, here, here's what you need to remember. This is one key phrase I want you to remember over the next two months. The more you look at Jesus, the more you will begin to look like Jesus. The more you look at Jesus, the more you will begin to look like Jesus. So we need to be continually looking at 
Jesus. We need to be beholding the glory of Christ. And then as a mirror, that glory will begin to reflect to other people. Other people will begin to see Christ in us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, looking to Jesus. I think the NIV says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Behold Jesus. Have your gaze on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So my, my, my passion as your pastor is that every single one of us would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we have to ask the question, what does the envision look like? What, what would this look like in Emmanuel Baptist Church? So we as elders have been praying about this for months. We've been thinking, we've been praying. So let me share with you what, what we believe the envision is. Here's the envision. We want God to create a gospel-centered culture where every single person connected to Emmanuel Baptist Church is being conformed to the image of Christ through an intentional disciple-making process. Let me say it again. A gospel-saturated culture where every single person connected to Emmanuel Baptist Church is being conformed or transformed to the image of Christ through an intentional disciple-making process. And so we've got to step back and ask some questions. What in the world's a gospel-centered culture? Would we even know it if we saw it? What does it mean that every single person connected to Emmanuel would be in, in this process? What does that mean? What does it really mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? What does it really mean to look more and more like Jesus? And what is this intentional disciple-making process you're talking about? And so if we step back and we ask the question, is every single person connected to Emmanuel Baptist Church being transformed into the image of Christ through an intentional disciple-making process, we have to say, Houston, there may be a problem. There may be a problem. And so I'm going to be very serious as your pastor this morning, very pointed. From the moment that I stepped foot in here seven and a half years ago until this day, there has been an angst in my heart that we have not seen God do this massive, widespread, disciple-making transformation that I'd like to see. I would like to see every single person connected to this church being conformed to the image of Christ, being growing in their discipleship, there's widespread involvement. Let me just ask you a few questions this morning. To see, to see if this is where you're at. How many of you, don't raise your hands, please, but just think about this in your hearts. How many of you really, really, really want to grow in Christ, but you just don't know how? You want to grow in Christ, but I just don't know how. Okay, another question. How many of you were specifically and intentionally mentored by a more mature Christian that helped you in your Christian walk? Or maybe you've been left to flounder. Other question. How many of you feel disconnected from this church and feel like you have no real significant relationships with people in this body of believers that you feel disconnected? How many of you feel stagnant in your Christian life? You feel like you're, you're, like a, you're just like the hamster on the wheel and, and you may be tired, you're frustrated, there's, there's no growth, and you just feel stagnant, you feel lonely, you feel tired, you feel frustrated. How many of you can truly say that I'm where God wants me to be? I'm being conformed to the image of Christ. I'm growing. My, my spiritual life is healthy. Not that we're ever going to arrive, but we can say honestly that, that there's something lacking in our hearts. There's something lacking in our lives. There's something lacking in our church. And so we could potentially answer this question a bunch of different ways. We can say, okay, we, we see that we have a problem. So, so here's, a, here's a way we can answer it as a church. Number one, we can create a program. Aren't we great at Southern Baptists of creating a program? 
Let's just go to the bookstore or go online and find the latest and greatest package program from some latest and greatest speaker, import it in our church and say, a program's going to fix the problem if we could just get the right program. I'm not content with that. Or number two, another, another solution is we can just guilt you each week. I could get up here each week and say, you're not living the way you should be living, and, and I can berate you from the pulpit and say, get your act together and just minister guilt to where you're like, okay, I guess Sean wants me to obey, so I'm going to obey begrudgingly, and I'm going to obey with the wrong attitude, and I'm not going to have any joy, but I'm going to do it because I have to, because if, if I don't, Pastor Sean's going to be mad at me, and God's going to be mad at me, and, and everything's about guilt. That's not going to work. That's just making me sad thinking about it. Or another response is we can just bury our heads in the sand and say, there's no problem. People are just going to kind of get it, get it by osmosis. They're just going to kind of limp along. And, and you know, we kind of think people are being transformed. We kind of think people are being conformed to the image of Christ. But, but let's just kind of deny there's a problem. And let's just limp along like there's nothing wrong. And as your pastor, I am not content with any of these solutions. So what do we do? Well, to tell you the truth, I have some ideas. And I think the elders have some ideas, but here's what we're not going to do. We are not going to shortchange you as a congregation in this journey. It would be very easy for me to stand up and say, this is what we're doing. Get on board. That is not healthy for me as your pastor, and that's not healthy as a church. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to be in this process of us going through it together. We are going to go through this journey together. Seeking the face of the Lord together, praying together, fasting together, seeking the face of the Lord together, congregationally going in the same direction together so that God can move in our midst. Now, here's, what's, here's, here's my job as a shepherd. I could very easily step out and say, here's the church's vision, here's the elders' vision, everybody come along. And that's one way to do leadership. Or I could say, you know what, I'm your under-shepherd, but I'm also a sheep. And we're all sheep. So what do sheep do? We follow the shepherd. So my job as pastor is to lead us all to the shepherd. And so if we're all looking to Jesus, if we're all following the chief shepherd, if we're all bowing to Jesus, then guess what? Jesus is going to lead us as the chief shepherd, and we're all going to get there together as the sheep. So I'm asking you to take a journey with me. I'm asking you to take a 50-day journey of spiritual growth and spiritual journey. I've put together a 50-day devotional guide. Never done anything like this before. It took a lot of work, blood, sweat, and tears, but I have got together a devotional that will start tomorrow, and it will go every day for 50 days. At the end of the service, our ushers are going to pass that out if you want a hard copy. Every day on our blog, there will be a new posting. It will be linked to our church app and on our website. It's in PDF. So whatever format you want to get it, it starts tomorrow. It goes 50 days. Now, oftentimes in the life of our church, we go through these, 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 these days of fasting and prayer, usually when we're gearing up to build a building or to give money. Not going to happen. We are doing this as a way to get spiritually prepared for what God is going to do in our hearts. Now, you may ask, well, why not 40 days? Why not 30 days? Why 50 days? Well, 40 days, everybody's got 40 days, okay? 40 days of purpose, 40 days of that. If you look back in the Bible, 40 days was the days when they were in the wilderness and the days when they were wandering. 50 days, what happened 50 days after Passover? Pentecost. In Pentecost, which was 50 days, the disciples were waiting and they were praying and they were seeking God to show up in power. So here's what I'm asking us to do. Just for the sake of your own spiritual growth, I'm asking you to join me on this 50-day journey 
starting tomorrow. It'll take you about 10 to 15 minutes a day to do this. These go along with my sermons, and then guess what? At the end of 50 days, on October 28th, we're going to gather back together as a church. We haven't done this in a long time. We're going to gather back together as a church, and that night, we are going to give testimony of what God has been doing in our hearts, what God has been teaching us, how we've been growing. It's going to be a time for us just to come together and say, my goodness, God has grown me. I've, I've seen God's power. I've seen God's grace, and it's a time for us to give testimony. So I'm asking you to join me on this journey because there's angst in my heart there's angst in my heart that we are not doing a very good job of making disciples let me just be very very honest with you very honest for the most part there's a core group of people i see at emmanuel that are that are serious about disciple making but there's a lot of people to be real honest that come on sunday morning you sit and you sing you hear me preach and you leave and beyond that there's no connection to the life of this church there's no friendships, there's no relationships, there's no spiritual growth. It's you and Jesus alone. You come for the show, and then you leave. And as your pastor, I'm not content with that, and that's why our vision is that every single person connected, whether you're a member or not, if you, fi- if you, fi- if you call this your church home, if you're connected here, we want to see you growing in Christ. And so as your pastor, I'm committed to leading us through this. Now, our elders are going to go through this 50-day thing. Our staff is going to go through this 50-day thing. And I want us to all go through it and so that when we come back together, we can all say, we've gone through this together. We, we've been led together. We've seen the, the work of God together. Uh, you won't just say, this was Pastor Sean's vision. Let's do it. I don't want this to be Pastor Sean's vision. If nothing ever happens after this 50 days except for you've grown spiritually, I call that a win. Because some of you have never actually done a daily quiet time where you've actually, in the mornings, opened your Bible, you got a devotional sheet, words from Pastor Sean, scripture to look up, a sample prayer, 15 minutes. Wow, I've never done that before. I'll give you a guide to do that every day for 50 days. So what's the envision again? A gospel-centered culture where every single person connected to Emmanuel Baptist Church is being conformed to the image of Christ through an intentional disciple-making process. And there's another key passage of scripture I think it's very important. John 15, 5. This is the words of Jesus. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Our vision must be about abiding in Christ. It must have the gospel as center. We don't want to have a program. We don't want to have guilt We don't want to deny there's a problem. We don't want to experiment with some new method and say, this is the latest and greatest fad. No, this is just basic. Getting into the word, spending time in prayer, abiding in Jesus, because he's the vine, we're just a branch, and apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, one of the key words that you're going to be hearing me saying over the next few months, besides the more you look at Jesus, the more you become like Jesus, is that being comes before doing. In other words, the the idea of your identity as a disciple in turn flows out into what you do as a disciple. Most Christians, when I talk to them, they're like, give me the list of what I'm supposed to do. If you just give me the things to check off, I can do those things. But you can maybe do those things out of wrong motives, out of wrong priorities, out of not a very good understanding of who you are in Christ, and you can just do these things in in hopes that somehow you're obeying God. So what I want us to do is I want to go back and I want to talk about our identity. And our identity is focused in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there will be a graphic on your screen that will demonstrate 
this. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's one God. He is one. Within that one God, there are three distinct persons. There's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Do you realize as a Christian that you relate to each person of the Trinity in a very special way? Your identity is wrapped up. Sometimes we just use God in a very generic sense. No, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, has done something specifically to us, has made us something. And so what I want us to do is to find out what's our identity in relation to each person of the Trinity. How has God changed our identity? What was our identity before we were Christian, and what has God done for us now in relation to how we relate to the Father, how we relate to the Son, and how we relate to the Holy Spirit? And once you understand your identity in Christ, your identity related to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it will bring joy to your heart to know that this is what God has made you to be. You are not defined by your past. You're not defined by your failures. You are not defined by your sin. You are defined by how God sees you and what God has made you. And until you begin to understand what God has done to free you to be who you are, then you're going to have so much more joy in your Christian life. So let's talk about our relationship to each person of the Trinity. What has God the Father done for us? What has Jesus the Son done for us? And what has God the Holy Spirit done for us in our identity. So let's first talk about our relationship to the Father, to God the Father. There's three things. We are chosen, we are loved, and we are accepted by the Father. God has planned for our salvation before the world began. God deeply loves us, and God accepts us. Let's explore each of these three theological truths more deeply and get a grasp on who God has made us. First of all, we are chosen by God. God has chosen us. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, don't get so caught up on and being scared by the word chosen or predestined. What I want you to see is that God has chosen us to be holy and blameless blameless. Doesn't that sound like conformity to the image of Christ? God has a plan in eternity past to make us look more like Jesus. He has chosen us as his dearly loved child to look more like Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then in 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's a great joy to know that God had his eye upon you and he has set you apart to be his unique possession, a treasured people. You are dearly chosen by God. But not only are you chosen, but secondly, you're dearly loved. You are dearly loved. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are deeply and dearly loved by God the Father. Romans 5, 8. Most of you know this is my favorite passage of Scripture. One of them. God shows or God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That word shows means God put it on display. God wanted to put his love on display so powerfully that how did he do it? While we were hopeless, while we were helpless, while we were sinners, Christ sent Jesus to die for us because of his great love for sinners. 
Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Listen to the rich language. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the power of God's love for you? His great love, his immeasurable riches, his kindness. God is a God who loves you. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. When John says see, it means behold, pay attention, be blown away, Christian, that God would actually love you. Has that caught your attention? That God loves you? We throw that around so much. God loves you, God loves you. It's an amazing truth that we are deeply loved by a great God. So we're chosen by this God. We are deeply loved by this God. But thirdly, we're accepted by this God. God accepts us, not the way we are, but he accepts us through Christ and what Christ has done. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're accepted with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through Jesus, we've obtained access. We've obtained entrance. We've, we've, we've been given an, an entry into this faith in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, what, what the imagery here Paul says is, is Christ has ushered us into the presence of a holy God and we stand accepted in God's presence. God can look upon us and says, I can accept you, sinner, because of what Christ has done in your place because you are acceptable to me on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. So who are we in relationship to the Father? We are chosen, we are deeply loved, and we are accepted by God. That's who you are. But what about in our relationship with the Son? What about our identity with Christ the Son? We are purchased, we are forgiven, and we are righteous. This is who we are. This is our identity. You are a purchased child of God. You are a, a, a redeemed or a forgiven ch- Christ of God, child of God, and you are a righteous child of God. So let's explore these three briefly. First of all, we're purchased. We're bought. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us or Christ bought us out of slavery is what redeemed means. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought, you were purchased from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, so you're, you're, not, you're not bought with money, but what have you been bought with? The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, the Bible teaches that before our identity, before we were Christians, was we were in, in bondage to sin, we were enslaved to sin, our identity was one of being a sinner, we were, we were in bondage, and Christ came and he bought us out of that state of bondage, and he's liberated us to be his blood-bought child so we're purchased but not only are we purchased but we are completely forgiven past present future every single one of our sins have been completely wiped out by christ on the cross this is wonderful that your identity is not of being a a person that's inflamed with guilt but you are one who's forgiven ephesians 1 7 in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness, riches of his grace. We have forgiveness. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice it says all, not some. He's forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's as if we had this little document that said guilty all over it. And that document that represented our guilt was put up on that cross. It was nailed there, never to be brought forward to us again. And Christ canceled the record of debt and he completely forgave us. So we are purchased and we are forgiven, but we're also righteous. It's not anything that you bring to the table that makes you righteous, but God makes you righteous in Christ. Our old identity was one of guilt, shame. We had major debt. We were in major spiritual debt because of our sin. Our old identity was one of being indebted. We were not righteous. But Christ came along and he credited us. He imputed, or a banking term, he, he transferred his righteous record, his perfect record to us so that when God looks down upon our lives, he sees the perfect record of Christ. Praise the Lord that when God sees you, he does not see your record, but he sees Christ's record. And based upon that, he can say not guilty. You are not guilty. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We are justified as, as a free gift of grace. Now listen to this. Romans 8, 30 through 33. Paul asks a rhetorical question here at the end. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer is what? No one can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Answer No one. They can bring charges, but they won't stand. It is God who justifies. So somebody, the devil can come and say, you're guilty, and God can say, no, you're not guilty because of the record of Christ. You are righteous in Christ. Who can bring any charge against us? Nobody can bring a charge that stands because we are counted righteous in Christ. We sang it earlier. Before the throne of God above, you come into the very presence of God's throne room with this holy God. How can you enter God's presence? I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, that's Jesus. Whoever leads it lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written in his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue convince me thus depart. If I, if I try to get into the presence of God and my sin is preventing me from getting there, all I have to do is look at Jesus and Jesus says, I've ushered you into the presence of of God. You are righteous. And then verse two, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, when Satan comes and says, you're a guilty, rotten sinner, upward I look and see Jesus there who made an end to all my sin. And because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look upon him and pardon me. God says, I'm looking at Jesus' record and based upon Jesus' record, I can count it as your record. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great and changeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with myself, himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my savior and my God. Okay, with the father, we are chosen loved and accepted 
With Jesus, we are purchased, we are forgiven, and we are righteous. This is who we are as Christians. But thirdly, let's round out the Trinity with the Holy Spirit. What is our relationship to the Holy Spirit? Who are we in relationship to the Holy Spirit? Well, we are indwelt, we are empowered, and we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is who we are. This is our identity. Let's explore these three briefly again. First of all, we are indwelt. What in the world does it mean that we are indwelt? Well, listen to the words of Jesus. In John 14, 16 through 17, Jesus said this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be where? In you. Can you possibly conceive that the God of the universe lives inside of you through the Holy Spirit? That is an amazing reality. That's your identity. You are indwelt by the very Holy Spirit of God. You are the temple of the living God. God, the Holy Spirit, is coming and taking up residence in your very life. You, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. That's your identity. What does Paul say in Ephesians 1, 13-14? In Him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with who? The promised Holy Spirit. How did that seal come? It came and he lived inside you, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit comes and he is the seal that God has given to live inside of us, guaranteeing that you're going to get to heaven. So you are indwelt by the very Holy Spirit of God. That's who you are. That's your identity. But secondly, you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't have to tell you what Acts 1.8 says. We can probably remember it. You will receive what? Power when who? The Holy Spirit comes upon you. But listen to Romans 15.13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. All of the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is available to you and me through the Holy Spirit who empowers you. So no Christian can ever say, I can't. I can't stop sinning. No, you can't. You've got the power of the Holy Spirit in you. I can't, I can't stop struggling with the sin. Yes, you can. You've got the Holy Spirit in you that gives you the power. 2 Peter 1.3 says this. His divine power has granted to us what? Some things. What does your Bible say? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to what? Life and godliness. What is that? Becoming conformed to the image of Christ, looking more like Jesus to the, by, uh, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So God has given us everything we need in the Holy Spirit to live the life that God has called us to live. So we're not left to our own devices and becoming conformed to the image of Christ. God, the Holy Spirit, says, I'm going to live in you and I'm going to empower you. And thirdly, not only that, I'm going to sanctify you. We are sanctified in the Holy Spirit. Now, don't be scared off by that word sanctified. It just basically means that the Holy Spirit is setting us apart. The Holy Spirit's working holiness in us. The Holy Spirit is making us look more like Jesus. He's taking us on this process of transformation to look more and more like Christ, and he promises to do that. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Will God do it? Yes, 
Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. God, if he started the work of salvation in you, he will guarantee you that he sees you through the end. He will sanctify you through and through. So let's think about our identity for just a moment. I know I've thrown a lot at you. I've been mulling this over for months. I've been thinking about this for months, and now it's just spewing out to you. So I'm sorry that you're drinking from a fire hose this morning. But let's put the graphic up and look at all three of these. This is a Christian. If you're a Christian here this morning, this is who you are. This is your identity. This is, you can walk out of this room saying, this is who I am. This is who God has created me to be. I am a chosen, loved, and accepted child of God by the Father. I'm purchased. I'm forgiven. I'm righteous in the Son. And I'm indwelt. And I'm empowered. And I'm sanctified by the Spirit. I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by my sin. I'm not defined by what other people say about me. I'm not defined by the the guilt that Satan brings to me. I'm defined by what God has made me to be and what God says I am. And I can rest in the solid assurance to know that's who I am. Now, when you begin to understand who you are, then you can understand what you're supposed to do for God. Okay, being comes before doing, but doing we still need to do. We are human beings, not humans doings. Thank you, Roger Hosea, for reminding us of that. We are human beings, not humans doing. But humans do, right? We obey. But before we obey Christ and know how we're supposed to live for Christ, it's important for us to know why we obey, who we are. Why do we have the power to obey? What have we been freed to do? It's good news for us. If you get the cart before the horse, if you get the doing before the being, guess what's going to happen? If I just came here this morning and gave you a list of things to do, if I gave you all the commands in Scripture and said, go out and do that this week, some of you would take the list and be like, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that. I know my friend down the street can't do that, but I can do that. My wife can't do that, but I can. You'll be very inflated with pride. I can do that. Just give me the list and I can do that. Some of you, if I give you a list, you'll look at that and say, I can't do that. That's too hard. I'm too defeated. I'm not even going to begin to try. So either way, you're lost. Either way, you're set up for failure. You're either going to be prideful thinking, I can do this on my own power, or you're thinking, there's no way I'm even going to begin to do this because I feel defeated. And so if you start doing things for Jesus and not understanding who you are in Jesus, you're not going to have the power. You're not going to have the desire. You're not going to have the drive. You're not going to have the motivation. You're not going to have the resources. You're going to be operating out of the flesh, and it's not going to be a pretty picture until you understand who it is that you are. And so on the next 50 days, I'm asking you to think deeply about who you are and who you are determines what you do and there are some very important things in the scriptures that define what a disciple does there's a lot of things that you're to be doing and i'm not discounting what you're to be doing because obedience is very key but we've got to get the being who we are first and then round both of those out to where we be and we do for god's glory so over the next few weeks i invite you on this journey of identity being who we are in christ who are we we're chosen We're loved, we're accepted. We're forgiven, we're purchased, we're righteous, we're indwelt, we're empowered, and we're sanctified. That is who you are. Here's the flip side. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you don't have Christ in your life, you can't even begin to live a life for Jesus. You can't even begin to live a life of obedience. You've got to have God do these things for you. You have to God, have God save you, God purchase you, the Holy Spirit live in you. And so the only way that happens is through repenting and believing. So if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I want all those things. I'm glad you want those things. You repent and you believe in Jesus. You trust in Christ. You confess your sins. 
And the Bible promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You, you confess your need for him, and he will come and do this work in your life. He will, he will love you. He'll accept you. He'll purchase you. He'll, he'll save you. He'll indwell you. He'll sanctify you. He'll get you on the path of looking more and more like Jesus. Identity, being who we are in Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I guess my main question for you is, do you really, truly want to look more like Jesus? At the core of your being, in your heart of hearts, do you desperately desire to want to be conformed to the image of Christ? Do you want to spend the time looking at Jesus so that you look more like Jesus? Do you want your heart to be transformed? Do you want your life to be changed? Do you want to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ? Spend some time this morning just crying out to the Lord, asking him to give it to you. I don't think there's anything wrong with begging the Lord to do what he promises to do in his scripture, and that is to conform you to the image of Christ. And so during this time, just pray, Lord Jesus, I want to be conformed to your image. I'm not sure how that looks. I'm not sure what journey you're going to take me on, but I'm ready. I'm willing. Will you please do this work in my heart? It's like we sang earlier. I give my life to the potter's hands. Mold me, make me, use me, fill me. I give my life to the potter's hands. Spend some time in prayer this morning. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up. I want to see you glorified. I want more of you. Lord Jesus, you promised to conform us to your image to look more like you. And to be honest, Lord, I don't really know exactly all that that looks like, but I know that it's a journey I'm wanting to go on to be transformed to look more like you. To be conformed to your image. To spend the time needed to to love you and to worship you and to glorify you and to, to behold you. And I know I can't do it on my own, Lord Jesus. That's why you've given me the, the, the Holy Spirit. So thank you, Holy Spirit, for living inside of me. Holy Spirit, thank you for transforming me. If, if I was left to my own devices, I would be lost and sunk and hopeless. So thank you for giving us the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us everything we need for life and godliness. May we truly desire more and more of you, dear Jesus. Open the eyes of our heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.